1: Thank you for joining
0: the conversation on Colloquium. This episode is brought to you by Excelsior Capital, an investment platform focused on democratizing private equity by providing individuals access to direct opportunities. To learn more about the firm, please visit excelsiorgp.com and connect with Brian on LinkedIn. Hello, and welcome to the Conversations on Colloquium. Today, I'm excited to have somebody that I've got to know through the pandemic virtually, Tim Powell, who's the president of the Mineral and Royalties Council. Tim, how are you doing today? I'm good,
1: Brian. Thanks for having me
0: on. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a very timely conversation. We're in the middle of a historic cold snap. Everyone in Texas is, we're keeping them top of mind right now, and they hope they get power and water soon. But, you know, all of a sudden, (laughs) we've gone from a year where energy was, battered. There's all this talk about kind of peak oil. Q1 of last year was a very challenging time for consumption. And now we're you know gone almost full circle talking about how vital it is for the US infrastructure and how much coal and and oil and natural gas, how huge they are for our kind of well-being and, and moving the economy forward. So I'm excited to ask you a bunch of hard questions here. But before we get into it, Maybe get a, a bit of background on yourself, what the minerals and royalties council does and,
1: and what your role there is. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, b- before going into it, I think uh, I never get political with renewables versus oil and gas, right? A, a lot of people try to make their stance on like that. I, I never see the point of doing it. But I got to tell you, I had no power for four days this week. We are awfully reliable, reliant <laughs> on electricity, everything we do. It's not just the internet. So in, in that moment, I kind of, the silver lining for me was just, it doesn't matter where we go going forward on this. It is so incredibly important that, you know, cheap, reliable energy is produced uh, because it's the fabric of society for anything we do, right? So anyways, um, no, listen, Brian, thanks for, for having me on. So Minerals and Royalties Council, just very, very quick overview. Our parent company, Energy Council, is the on-gas portfolio company of a firm called Clarion Events. Clarion is, is based in London, and they are owned by the Blackstone Group. So Clarion has a portfolio that's quite vast, covering various media and events-related businesses and, and sectors all over the globe. We you know, have offices in Singapore, in Beijing, in Cape Town, in London, and then I run our America's Group out of Houston. And we're a networking platform. So we've all, for the decade plus we've been in business, we look to learn the investment strategy and the operational plans and the BD plans of oil and gas ex- management teams. And on the flip side, the debt and equity investors that back projects and management teams directly, we get to understand their criteria, the asset classes they look to invest in within the oil and gas you know, value chain. And, and then we would connect people typically around dinners and in-person events. That was the business model for the longest time. And we, we always like to say we're directing traffic, you know, getting the right people in the room and making it worth their while. Now, minerals and royalties is an asset class within the oil and gas space. And that was a, a growing part of our platform in the US for the last five, six years since the first IPO started in 2014. Last year with the pandemic and our core business model really getting disrupted with BD and live events stopping. I decided to pivot almost full time into the mineral space. And why was that? Because the upstream oil and gas space is, is largely over levered right now. The mineral space is not. The companies hardly use debt at all. If they do use debt, it's a very conservative vanilla bank line that, you know, someone's basically bootstrapping a company on their own, very similar to a small entrepreneurial, you know, family-owned company, right? And, and then they service the debt very seamlessly, but it's not these large, you know, hundreds, billions of dollars of, of debt that has gotten the oil and gas space for EMPs in trouble. And, and then it's a different animal, right? You don't have cost exposure in minerals. In oil and gas operations, you have a portion of the revenue and a portion of the operational costs. And those can go up and down with commodity prices, with swings in, in the industry, you know, downturns and upturns, service costs can get inflated. You don't have that in minerals. You just have a portion of the of the revenue. So that that's a whole different type of investor class that can go in. They don't have to be specialists. They can get access to a commodity. And you know, it's a real asset as well. And so that's appealing for a lot of folks. So I looked at the universe of you know what we do. We cover the globe. I cover Latin America, US, Canada. And I said, you know what? A lot of stuff is going to be really murky for a while. There's going to be a lot of restructuring, both from the financial side and the corporate side. And I, I don't foresee that happening in minerals. I think it's a good use of my time. And we already had a lot of inroads and just started phone royalty CEOs, investors, seeing what they were thinking. And launched the minerals and royalties podcast at the same time. That's kind of how we got in touch originally. And um, from there, it's just been really all things minerals, right? Helping folks with access to capital. We ran a fundraising show last week. We set up over 30 one-to-ones with families, institutions who are looking to invest into GPLP partnerships. We've helped folks on deal flow. And just generally speaking, we're trying to educate the industry and the broader investment community on what minerals and royalties are—they're not new, but they've been a, a, a well-kept secret within the oil family universe. I'll say, family offices that have made their wealth on oil know all about minerals and been doing it for years and years. It's great for wealth preservation. It's a great yield product. There's tax benefits. You know, ten thirty one it with real estate, but it's it, you know getting it beyond. The oil space, getting it into institutions, into family offices, into wealth management arms, because it you know it's, it's an attractive it's an attractive investment product for for a lot of different groups, right? Especially in this yield-starved uh, investment environment we find ourselves in. Yeah, I would definitely encourage
0: any listeners who are interested in in learning about the space. Tim does an incredible job of putting on you know virtual events, and his podcast series is extremely informative. And you get some great interviews and, and talking to GPs and sponsors and other kind of ancillary service providers there. And uh, I think part of the reason I initially connected with you and we have some overlap in terms of the investor base is because, to as you alluded to, there's so many parallels to commercial real estate in terms of it's a real asset it has capital preservation characteristics. It, it does come with this great yield component, which is hugely popular right now. And it really behaves from a tax perspective, just like real estate itself. And so I think people, when you're looking at crossing over and, and learning about a new asset class or a new investment product, oil and gas minerals makes a lot of sense for commercial real estate investors. So there's some great synergies there, which I'm, I'm sure we'll get into.
1: Yeah. And, and on that, Brian, you know, when you, we've been doing a lot in the family office space of late when you look at the family offices that are in minerals, but aren't oil families, a lot of them are heavy in real estate. And they were brought in on a club deal for real estate with someone who had oil and gas minerals exposure. They develop a relationship. I mean, you get how the family office space works and they backed into minerals through that way. That, that's the most common way family offices get involved in minerals that I've seen. And it, yeah, like you said, there's tons of parallels. I mean, there's a great analogy that Scott Noble, the CEO of Noble Royalties, made when I did a podcast episode with him. He's like, listen, you know, minerals, you don't pay for R&D and technology innovation over time. And, you know, when when new oil and gas benches get discovered geologically and they get exploited, you don't pay for that. It's like buying a, a two-story apartment building and then they decide to add eight more stories on top of it, but you don't pay for that extra eight stories, but you get eight stories worth of rent. I mean, that, that's the commercial real estate analogy. And so that's really interesting. I mean, it doesn't always happen, but it, but it can happen because this is a, it's a class that you can hold for a very, very long time. Cause again, it's a real asset. And if it's the right cost of capital and you're not looking for a capital gain and you can realize your returns through distributions, you can realize some of those cyclical benefits of, you know, everything I just alluded to. So before we get into the nitty gritty, maybe give
0: give folks a little bit of a one on one on on what a, a mineral rights royalty is and what it isn't, because I think a lot of people when they think about energy or oil and gas, they think of the big multinationals, the big public traded companies, which have been in the headlines recently, frankly. But they're a totally different animal. So could you maybe kind of break that down for us before
1: we. Move forward, yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I think to start when you have a, a property. Well, taking a, a step back even further, minerals. When you say minerals, a lot of folks they think hard rock minerals, right? Uh, if they're not familiar with oil and gas, the hard rock minerals exist all over the world. Mining is obviously you know a very mature industry. The U.S. land rights system is very unique to any country in the world. So in the U.S., outside of some federal lands, individuals own the, the rights in the ground. And that's that's water rights. That's petroleum rights. It, it, it's, it's all rights. And there's death severances and there's exceptions to that we can own certain types of rights. But for simplicity's sake, let's just say individuals own everything below the surface. We'll call it subsurface real estate is the, is the easiest analogy. And, you know, I think what what's really interesting is getting investors to wrap their head around that from other countries, because in other countries, the government owns everything and they just, do, they just hold rounds of, you know, bid rounds to oil and gas companies to essentially rent the right to extract the government's minerals out of the ground. And it's Basically, like a you know a a revenue share type principle with minerals, you own the equity in the ground, but you don't have exposure to the cost. So, in in the oil and gas ecosystem, when when an oil and gas company drills and extracts oil and natural gas out of the ground, they have working interest on a scale of one to one hundred percent, and they have NRI net revenue interest from one to one hundred percent, and your percentage of working interest and net revenue interest is your proportionate percentage of costs and and revenue. Minerals is is just on the NRI side. So you have the on-gas companies will go to a rancher in West Texas, for instance. Let's just say that rancher owns the minerals for a certain area and they go and they say, hey, we want to lease your acreage, the surface rights for three years. And they negotiate certain terms on working interest and net revenue interest, and then they go and they drill. And if, if it's productive and the oil gets extracted or the gas gets extracted and sold, the rancher gets a percentage of that revenue and they don't have to run the operations. They don't have to pay the costs. Now there, there is something a term called non-op working interest partners or non-op partners for short. Those are individuals who have a share of the costs. And a share of the revenue but they don't control the operations some royalties companies like to do both non-op and royalties but it's becoming more and more popular to just have pure play minerals companies because you don't have the overhead and the gna of, of those wells and you know unconventional wells i'm sure everyone's heard the shale revolution who's listening unconventional wells are 10 million bucks each so you can imagine even if you're a two percent working interest owner and Exxon goes and drills 30, $10 million wells, that CapEx hit can be pretty devastating if you're hit at the wrong time with your portfolio to get those, those capital calls. And so you know, paying upfront for something and then not having to budget in capital calls going forward is very attractive for investors. And, and then you just produce it out and get, and get the yield over time as, as the, minerals are producing. Now, the one thing, it all sounds great. I'm kind of arguing pro minerals right now. If the minerals don't get developed, you don't get any revenue. That's the downside. So you can't just say, you know what? I really like my minerals. I want someone to drone right now. You're not in control. So you're in the back seat of the car and someone else is driving. You need to, you know, as, as professional minerals companies go out and aggregate these these portfolios of minerals, you want to make sure you're in a good call, a good driver, so that the likelihood that your minerals get produced in the near term with a competent operator, so that you get the max return on your minerals, is is critical. You know, you can also buy existing production as well. That that's more of a straight yield play, and um, that that's just a different facet of of the mineral space. It to translated over to, to real estate, you could buy an existing apartment building in, in downtown New York city, or you could go out into a suburb where there's a new development. It's just different costs of entry, different risk profiling investors. And so there's all sorts of different ways you can play, play the game and skin the cat.
0: So along those lines, what is the universe of, of optionality available to people if they want to invest in this space?
1: Yeah, so you can have you can go through public securities. That space is very green. You have, on top of my head, six or seven publicly traded minerals companies. The challenge with a lot of those is the market cap is, is small, so large institutions can't afford to go in and out of those. Of you know, we're talking three four hundred million market cap, but that started in twenty fourteen. So that space will grow. They these companies. Trade on yield, so they need to buy mature producing minerals. They can't buy undeveloped minerals and take speculative risks. But you know, the, all the companies that have made it public, you know, going public is very difficult over the last five years. The ones that have gone public are are healthy management teams, they're quality companies, and you know that over time there'll be more public companies and and they'll they'll grow. So that's one option. You can invest into the stock of a, a public equity. Uh, and it, it, and it's similar to a REIT, right? I
0: mean, in terms of the challenging space, typically lower kind of market cap, smaller type companies. My family invested in a couple of these pub- traded firms in, I think, May or June when they were just getting hammered. Typically super high yields, but there are some structurally, there there's some issues there in terms of how they get bigger and what the ultimate liquidity looks like. So I'm very much like a burgeoning asset class, I think, in a lot of ways.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, do some of these public companies merge and and, and get the scale needed? Or do you have some private portfolios combined, you know, like a triple or quadruple merger that gets a $3 billion market cap? Those conversations happen all the time. So we'll see. And the the right portfolios will come to market as as need be, right? But so that's, you know, going back to how do you invest, that's one way. The other is, you know, you can go direct, which is interesting. And you don't, if you think to yourself, traditionally investing in oil and gas, you typically need a little bit of scale. You need an operations team to buy an asset directly. With minerals, you can, you can be, you know, buy an undivided interest. That is the tune of $50,000. You can start as small or as big as you want you know i think that buying direct is is typically you have family offices right by packages and portfolios that have been aggregated you can do co-investment partnerships alongside minerals teams uh, and they you you know additional high net worth or family offices give scale for for certain shops to get access to bigger deals they wouldn't be able to take down with their own money and then you can invest into uh, GPLP partnerships, and that, that's an increasing trend now as private equity has been challenged over the last few years. I think they have their established portfolio companies in certain regions of the country. The days of putting up 12 different management teams for one basin are over. They're consolidating within their portfolios, and they have quite a bit of dry powder in their funds left but that's going to go to existing management teams. It's all about scale now, driving down costs. And so that's happening in minerals as well. Even though minerals is different than EMP, the trends are, are very similar. So consolidation, driving down costs, still has benefits. So you see a lot of private equity companies sticking with one max, two royalty vehicles within their portfolios. And as a result, you have all these teams that, have pipelines of deal flow. They have track records and minerals and they no longer have access to private equity capital. So they want to go out, raise money direct from family offices and and institutions. And the, the, the sweet spot typically is a friends and family office fund of 20 to 25 million, maybe take 18 months to deploy. I think that's something where you can buy selectively, you can buy value. And a lot of groups are pivoting towards that. And so that's one of the reasons why, you know, us kind of being the the mouthpiece of the mineral space on behalf of our network to try to get out, come on here, speak with you and other organizations just to educate groups out there on what minerals are to hopefully pique their interest, right?
0: And, and when I was doing some homework on this space over the summer, I guess it was, it seemed like most of these groups are doing blind pool commingled funds, that it was a challenge to do. In, in real estate, for instance, we're a syndicator, right? So we have one building in one location, we raise capital around that one building, specialty purpose vehicle type setup. But this space seemed like just structurally, it was challenging to do that. Is that always the case? Is that what you find for high net worth individuals and families to gain access is
1: typically through a, a GPLP fund vehicle? Yes and no. So secondaries is a, is a strategy that a lot of investors are exploring, you can have legacy minerals funds that contribute assets into a a new co-fund. And then you get cash flow and collateral day one. And if that's a preference of the investor, that can be structured. I know that's being explored by a lot of our, the GPs in our network. You can have a deal flow pipeline, right? That you kind of bring to the table. I think timing that is challenging as you're fundraising, right? Time kills deals and, you know, getting in front of the investor, the due diligence period on the team, tying the deal down. At, uh, the, the other thing is groups will warehouse deals as well. So they'll buy it with their own capital or the cash flow of pre-existing funds and warehouse it and then roll it into a fund once the, the fundraise is, is settled. So those, those are kind of different things you see. But going back to the blind pull nature of it, I think it would be helpful to understand of how these groups are putting these portfolios together so why the mineral space from an institutional capital perspective exists is because it's very very fragmented so what what's happened over the years is you have families will will inherit these minerals and then it gets cut up to heirs and then you know they have children and they have grandchildren and so on and so forth and so you have all these tiny interests all over the place people move people sell them. And so it's extremely hairy that, you know, to figure out who owns this stuff, to get access to them, to get them to sell it. And so for an investor that wants a yield, you know, having a half a mineral acre that spits out 70 bucks a month, isn't that exciting? But if you aggregate a thousand of those and you get something of scale and, you know, something spinning out 250 grand a month, right? So that's the whole game of these professional teams who have geologists and, and software platforms and personal relationships on the ground, they can aggregate this stuff, get the scale and the profile of risk that certain investors are looking for. Lots of yield, you know, kind of steady, someone who wants to take a little more speculation and, and, and buy something right before it hits production. And it's really important to, to understand that and why a lot of these funds, I explain that because A lot of these funds will have, you know, "quote unquote" blind pool funds, because they have to go out and aggregate this stuff piece by piece. It's very difficult to just buy big chunks. Um, You know, big is a relative term in minerals. If you buy a ten million dollar minerals portfolio, it's decent size. Oil and gas, ten million bucks is is a nothing burger. So, you know, I I think that it takes time to put twenty five million dollars to work thoughtfully, if you want to do it at the wholesale level, which a lot of folks prefer because they wholesale, you know, the, the term ground game is, is oftentimes used, right? You're going out, you're, you're knocking on the doors of landowners, you're trying to buy direct from them, direct from the source. Depending on your strategy, it, cheaper cost of capital, meaning yield only, wanting to put scale of dollars to work, maybe wanting to have a management structure where you're lean and you outsource everything and you only have three people instead of a large team, you may prefer to to buy aggregated packages, package them up into a larger scale. So there's a whole daisy chain that works really nicely. You have aggregators on the ground that'll, you know, they might use their own money and put stuff together, flip it up and make a you know, a two X real quick on their, on their money. And, and it's good for them because they're not an established fund. And then you have, you know, private equity costs of capital. You have cheaper cost of capital it gets down to low teens, you know, high single digits. Everyone's looking for something different, different scale. And and that's where all the different aggregation strategies come into play. But at the lower end of the market, a lot of folks will will do that blind pool simply, because they need to, you know, brick by brick, right? Build build the yellow brick road. And
0: what are return profiles in this space? Say you're, you know, a high net worth individual or family office, you're looking to invest into a vehicle or, or a syndication that's $100,000, $250,000 minimum. I mean, where are yields today? And what does that ultimate liquidity look like from a hold period? And to your point, there's this ecosystem did they just sell to a bigger fish at some point? I mean, how do you get liquid
1: at the end of the day? So I'll answer that in, in two ways. The investors that want real assets into perpetuity. So if you start with that bucket and you're just looking at you know, getting your returns through distributions over, over the longer term, I think you know, minimum 10-year holding period is, is what you'll need to, to have this asset class make sense for the purchase price up front. It varies, obviously, based on portfolio and how everything's bought. But from what I see, 8 to 13% annualized returns is is kind of what you'll get through distributions that can, can go up and down with commodity prices. I think overall, investors are looking to get up some sort of path towards a 2X plus return. Guys that smash it get 2.5 to 3 plus X type returns. I think when you're getting, Upwards of that, it's you time the market, right? It was just a bit of a unicorn buyer, whatever. But yeah, I think that that's kind of what, what you're looking at. There's a couple of ways to achieve that those numbers and, and that the two acts, again, it can be very, very cheap cost of capital that wants to hold it forever through distributions or you can recycle your assets. And this is where capital gain strategies come in. You can package stuff up, And you can sell it to a larger buyer, someone up the food chain. There's some pros and cons to that. The more consolidated a package is, the larger it is, the harder it is to to do. So someone with larger sums of money is going to pay a premium for that. And so you can get an extra pop on your money through that premium. However, minerals from an institutional perspective is still relatively young, I would say, private equity and larger scale funds like pensions and and insurance just started coming into this space in a real way 6 7 years ago. Publics only started 2014, right? And there's only 6 or 7 of them. So that's your buying universe when you start to get packages of 50 to 100 million plus and you start to narrow your options. So look at today, right? If you want to sell a large scale portfolio of 100 plus million dollars today, the publics are basically out of the game because their equity has been crushed just with the with the timing of cycles and everything. So now you're removing half of your buyer universe of established buyers I should say. There's some pensions that go direct, there's some insurance companies that go direct, but you're you're really narrowing it down, right? Now you can achieve capital gains through smaller dispositions along the way, which is something I personally like, I think you have more optionality and you're not as constrained time wise. So as you go lower and lower, you you know, let's just say $25 million size assets, then 15, then sub 10, then sub five, the universe of buyers gets bigger and bigger. And the cost of capital can be as competitive as some of these end buyers that are bigger, you know, family offices, high net worth, right smaller, you know, smaller funds that have institutional type capital, they just don't want to take down a hundred million dollars. And so you can peel stuff off along the way. I think Mm -hmm. what's really interesting is you can buy a portfolio, put it together and, and as stuff starts to get drilled and starts to mature and gets that hits that optimal value point where it's it's churning out yield. And after that, it's kind of in harvest mode you can start to drop that stuff off to smaller select buyers and you can get a combination of yield distribution and capital gains returns year by year as you go in your fund. And that's a way to, you know, instead of maybe waiting to get the big, big grand slam and get a two, two and a half X return after five years, let's say, or three years, you take all that time to build a portfolio. You get a bunch of 0.8 X returns and 1.2 X returns and Plus the distributions and, you know, you can get there. It's a little more work, a little more piecemealing, but, you know, you can time the market. Right now, gas, right? We're, we're in a, a cold spell in Texas. Really good time to sell gas production. Not so great a time to, you know, with oil, but, you know, selling oil assets two years ago was great. So you can time it by doing these little piecemeal divestitures along the way. And I, personally, I, I think that's a, a good way to go for sure.
0: And that's a great point. How dependent are these investments on commodity prices and, and what's happening in the energy markets themselves? They're tied to
1: commodity prices. There's no running away from it. So I know in the Bakken, which is in Colorado, North Dakota, you know, the Rockies region, guys were getting, you know, a dollar per barrel back in, you know, the first second quarter of last year when things got really ugly with the with the oil price war you're going to get affected. The EMP companies are struggling. If there's bankruptcies, if there's mergers, you're going to get affected as a minerals owner, but you can, you can hedge some of those risks through traditional financial hedging, through doing your homework on the financial health of the operators you buy minerals under, trying to look at all sorts of different macro, you know, geopolitical trends and weather patterns, there's, you know, do I want to do business in just Texas or do I want to do business in certain states that might have some political risk? So you can mitigate a lot of the risks associated with, with the industry based on how you go about building your portfolio. But at the end of the day, when prices go down, your revenue is going to go down as well, right? But you're, you're not, Here here's the difference. So when when there's a downturn or, or oil goes from hundred bucks to fifty bucks, all of a sudden, as an operator, you need to slash your cost. You need to find a way to slash costs. And then, when oil is really high, you know, service costs will get inflated. It's, there's always this battle between the service industry and the operating side of the business. In minerals, you never have cost exposure, so you know you, you don't have to be as concerned in downturns. You can be a little bit more patient, riding it out. Just really, it comes down to a time value money argument, right? And and what the expectations are on you know y- your your money. So
0: how it's been interesting with with COVID, the amount of content creation within the commercial real estate space. I know we do a lot of it just to be a resource to to our network and, and investor base. If people want to educate themselves about
1: this universe, what are the resources available to them? I mean, I hate to say us, but. Largely speaking, that's why I, you know, we, we created the Minerals and Royalties Council and our podcast last year because there was no resources out there. If you googled minerals and ro- royalties or oil and gas minerals and royalties, you get the, pub, the links to the public companies, and public companies behave very differently than a lot of the privately held companies. So that was just a sliver of the universe if you read their IR decks. And outside of that, it, you know, outside of maybe a random blog here and there, there's nothing. So that's why we started our minerals podcast. We, we have a, a mineral CEO on every week talking about the space, talking about their company, just really chopping it up, trying to get people familiar with how the space works and the trends and the companies that are running the space, how they behave and see the world. And so that's, that's really it. I, I would recommend we do webinars or do our podcast, just Google, Minerals and Royalties Council podcasts, And hopefully all that is, is a tool you can consume at your own pace when and if you want to get educated on the space. And then they'll, they'll, as you start to identify the players in the space that are in our network, they'll, you can follow them. They'll have posts and content and analysis reports they put out. But if you don't know the space, it's going to really be impossible to organically come across that. And so, yeah, we're hoping to do a public service by putting out all this content out there and you know get it into the the non oil and gas investment arena so that you know people who are looking for alternative investments that kick out yield stumble across this, right?
0: And and how about the operations themselves? Real estate, very much like energy, oil and gas, it's an old line industry. It can often be very traditional. But tech is starting to align itself with, in our world, prop tech, with some of these operations and, and diligence platforms, investor relations, et cetera. Are you seeing that play out as well in the, in the mineral space?
1: Yeah, 100%. So the, the great thing about minerals is the more you add on, everything is accretive. So you don't necessarily, if I manage a million dollars worth of minerals, if I now manage $10 million worth of minerals... I really don't add that much cost on, right? Because I don't have operations. So leveraging technology, software platforms, different streamlined, different processes is is integral because you want to do more with less. And of course, there's cost pressures with COVID and laying people off and the economy being strained. So everywhere you can look, you want to try to find that edge. And Time kills deals. So companies want to figure out, how can I move quicker? That's one angle of technology. If you can do due diligence quicker, if you can screen more deals, if you can do it with less people and less costs, it's, it's huge. And So there's all the different facets of the mineral space, the title, you know, lead acquisitions, finding contact info, marketing. There's all these little you know, startup tech companies that are, are popping up. That are doing great things and you know it's it's only gonna continue and we we're actually doing a webinar in early march on technology innovation in the mineral space we're gonna have four or five companies on but it's it's not unlike anything else i mean i think if you're putting the hat on of we're a technology company in oil and gas you started to look at ways to add value in the mineral space several years back because you saw minerals as a bright spot within oil and gas and you know, if you could add value, you would get money because these companies are healthy and they they have capital, right? So that that's something that's been going on for some years now.
0: And then, you know, as we've finished up the conversation here, obviously, the Biden administration has come in. There's a lot of chatter that they're going to invest in the green space. They're going to, you know, potentially interrupt some of the oil and, and energy sector players what are your thoughts there? What are you seeing? How are you advising investors who want to maybe put their toe in the water here, but are, are hesitant because of some of the rhetoric that they hear or see
1: in the media? You know, for starters, banning fracking, banning oil and gas, all, all those kind of blanket statements, it's not feasibly possible. What, what can the federal government do? The federal government technically can ban fracking on federal lands within oil and gas, federal lands affect parts of the Rockies, Powder River Basin. It affects part of the Delaware Basin and the Permian on the New Mexico side. There's a lot of fed lands in New Mexico. Offshore Gulf of Mexico for the royalty space, not really relevant. Alaska, there's a lot of fed lands for royalties, not really relevant. So they they can overturn it only in federal lands. A huge majority of the lands are privately held. And so that comes down to the state-level governments. I think you need to watch the politics at the state level. Colorado is, is one, is a state that's facing a lot of challenges. They have a very prolific basin called the DJ Basin. And there's been all sorts of legislature that's been passed in, in the following years that's made it very cumbersome. It is a very, very difficult environment for oil companies to operate in. But, you know, again, it, there's still companies that, are making good money in the DJ basin and, and continue to invest there. I, I just think capitalism prevails in the end. What what's important to look at with with Biden? I think if I, I personally, I think federal lands are, are challenged. If you're a bit contrarian, you say, you know what, I'm going to get in cheap. These are vital resources to the country. I might have to wait four or five years to have activity pick back up. There's always people who are willing to take on a little more risk and the the capital stack, you know that. but you know I think it's more of death by a thousand cuts for anything the government can touch. So they'll never formally ban anything because of the backlash you would get from certain interest groups and the backlash of the economy, but they can make it awfully difficult to do anything. Red tape around you know filings and permits and I've, I've heard stories of guys who dead with, dealt with fed lands for 30 years plus on the operating side. Where some sort of endangered species you've never heard of can block up a permit getting filed for a year and a half, just they they can trip it up any way they can, and that that's going to happen. That happened in the Obama administration on Fedlands, lands, and that's already started to happen with Biden. He shut down the Keystone pipeline. That was kind of low hanging fruit. I think stuff with Alaska. He put a moratorium on additional drilling permits on Fedlands. lands. I personally think those were you know, he had to do it for his base, right? He comes in the office, you do a couple of things that are just easy, but does it drastically affect everything, you know, in the the space? No. If there's further actions taken, if existing pipelines get affected or there, you know, can increase restrictions, maybe at the state level, that's more democratic run, that will have impacts for sure. But you got, you know, not to get into politics, but I had one thing that gives me comfort from an industry perspective is there's a midterm election coming up in two years. The, the Dems have majority, right? But if they overplay their hand and it swings back and they lose majority, the, you know, then they're neutralized the last two years. So do they have, Biden's known for being a little bit more down the middle as well, which I think is a, is a good thing. I think split government is a good thing, in my opinion. So does he play it a little bit more safe after these initial goes, these initial things he's implemented since joining office? Think that makes sense? Logic doesn't always prevail. I think the Trump presidency taught us that, but yeah, I, I think you gotta be cautious going forward, but for those who say oil well, and gas is going away, I mean, it's kind of what I started out here. We're talking about this polar vortex freeze we've been experiencing here in the U.S. When you realize how reliant we are on, on electricity, which you know, comes majority from oil and gas and the billions of dollars that are, are going into that, the, we're a capitalist country. So you can't just pull the plug on something. So they'll, you got to be smart. I think the simplest, because I'm rambling here a little bit, the simplest advice would be if you really want to hedge your bets and, and be a little safer, go into states like Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma. These are traditionally oil and gas safe havens. From a political perspective, from a you know filing permits and just the structure of the way everything's set up, it's easier to drill on gas there. And so, you're removing some of those risks by by playing in those types of arenas. So let's piggyback on that. I mean,
0: I'm not asking you to give investment advice, but if you're a first time investor, you like the space, you you've done some homework, you understand it you're probably traditionally a real estate investor that, that likes that cap preservation plus that yield component and all these tax advantages. What's the right way to get started here in a safe manner? Don't shoot for the moon, but you just want to kind of learn about the space to, through through investing. What do you tell kind of first-time
1: investors? I would recommend picking a good jockey and going into a GPLP structure or some sort of, depends on what kind of scale of money you want to put in, maybe an SPV with a company and they could do a strategy tailored to what you want. You know, again, if you're big enough, maybe a co-investment partnership alongside somebody, there you can dip your toes in, you can learn the space and you're letting an expert do it. An expert that knows all gas has technical people and and acquires minerals for a living. I, I think if you're completely new to try to acquire these assets directly is probably, premature. But after, you know, after you start to build up a portfolio of minerals and you have existing cash flow, you can consider hiring a couple people in-house and buying packages yourself and funding some of that GNA out of cash flow. You know, you start to learn the ins and outs of it. Maybe you have a couple of battle scars, right, on things you should and shouldn't do. That would be my recommendation, though. Pick some, do your homework, meet with Lots of different teams, try to get a pasting menu of what's out there and the strategies. And then, you know, pick someone you like and, and give it
0: a go. Great advice. And something that I've been doing a homework on for the last 12 months. And Tim's been an incredible resource for me. So along those lines, how are the people what's the best way for them to connect with you, learn more about the work you're doing on the council? Just you know, meet some of these GPs and, and management teams and sponsors that you have this Rolodex X of what's the best
1: way for folks to reach out? Yeah, no, I appreciate that, Brian. And thanks again for having me on. From a content perspective, if you want to just consume what we're putting out, just Google Minerals and Royalties Council podcast, Minerals and Royalties Council webinars. I think those two things in Google will get you to the right place. If you're interested in getting direct introductions to, to GPs or speak with me directly, you can reach out tim.powell, P-A-W-U-L, at energycouncil.com. I'd love to learn more about your investment criteria and you know we make introductions for folks. So we're trying to connect the dots, especially in a virtual world. And if you're serious about getting involved and want to speak with management teams, we can be that bridge. And we're happy to help you in this journey. And, and our end goal is to get more investors in this space. So we'd love to, to chat with everyone personally, if, if, if possible.
0: Yeah, and, and I can personally attest to The resources Tim has available are impressive. Definitely encourage people to reach out. So, Tim, thank you for having the time. I hope you you, stay stay warm, stay safe, and hopefully some people can reach out and learn more about what I think is a very interesting investment area. Absolutely. Thanks again for having me on, Brian. Have a great weekend. We'll be in touch. Thanks, Tim. Take care. Thank you for joining the conversation on Colloquium. If you enjoyed what you heard in this episode, please like, rate, or leave us a review, and stay tuned for our next episode coming soon.
1: Selling a little or a lot?